Welcome to The Informed Life. In each episode of this show, we find out how people organize information to get things done. I am your host, Jorge Arango. My guest today is Ha Fong. Ha is the director of discovery for Pluralsight, an e-learning platform. Before becoming a product leader, she was a principal UX designer at GoPro. In this conversation, we discuss Ha's journey from UX design to product leadership. I hope you find our conversation valuable. And now, Ha Fon. Ha, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jorge, for having me. I'm glad to virtually meet you at last. Oh, I'm very excited to meet you as well. For folks who might not know you, can you please tell us about yourself? Yeah, so professionally, I work for Pluralsight. I am the director of discovery for our discovery products. I view that as a platform, and we basically solve problems like search, browse, recommendations, and wayfinding. And the reason why I say it's a platform is because we build capabilities and infrastructure to enable teams to do other things. And on our team, we have a you know, mix of machine learning engineers, data scientists, software engineers, product managers, and designers. At one point, I manage all of those people. Also, everything we build is uh, on top of what I call a, a data structure. And that's kind of why I joined Pluralsight. That's why I picked search as the first problem to solve, because I view it as the ultimate information architecture problem. Actually, when they interviewed me at Pluralsight, they asked me, you came from GoPro and you worked on all these cool machine learning computer vision problems. Uh, why do you want to come work for us? You know, we're just building this website. And I said, I see the main problem being information architecture problem. And I didn't know at that time how true that was until I worked on search. Anyway, that's a little bit about what I do professionally. Personally, I'm quite a boring person. I don't do much. I live in a beach town in uh, Southern California. And right now we're in a pandemic. So daily I take walks to the beach and I walk on the trail and I do a lot of thinking on my walks. So yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Back to Pluralsight quickly, just so people don't know what Pluralsight is. Pluralsight is an e-learning platform for technologists. So I think when I first joined Pluralsight, the pervasive product story is that we enable anyone to be able to reinvent themselves through learning and technology. So there's always these stories around, you know, people who reskill to get a better job in tech. That was a story I heard very often when I joined Pluralsight. But as we scale as a business and as a platform, we move more into the B2B space. So right now, I think the pervasive product story is that we help enterprises upskill their workforce and enable them to meet their business goals through that. So that's like a very broad stroke about what Pluralsight is. I'm going to try to reflect back to you the journey as I see it. You went from a UX design role at GoPro to this role at Pluralsight, which sounds to me like it has a broader mandate than just UX design. I mean, just from the roles, you said that you have machine learning folks and data scientists alongside with designers. And I'm wondering 
if you can share with us insights as to the differences between UX design roles and roles that require kind of a broader perspective. I think as UX designer, we tend to think broad already, right? When, when you start to think about new innovation or new problems to solve, UX is the practice of like building these visions and bringing them to life. UX is a way of providing clarity for the rest of the organization to find their mission and their vision. So as UX designers, we kind of already have that in our DNA. I think the difficulty was, you know, between the role I have now or the delta between the role I have now versus being a UX designer is that, you know, it's really a leadership role to basically provide the path to clarity. So when, when you have a vision, even as a seasoned UX designer, you're going to present forth this vision. And usually there's a thousand questions and a thousand steps before you get there, right? Uh, and usually you don't get there entirely, you know, you don't get to the vision entirely the way you had envisioned it. Uh, you, you're going to take turns, right? And I think in this role, what I get to do is that I get to enable the team to find that path to clarity and to kind of provide the milestones or the mission for each of the goals along the way. It, it's really hard to explain, but I think I didn't come into Pluralsight thinking I was going to do that. I came into Pluralsight thinking that, oh, there's this really hard problem and nobody's solving it. So I think I need to be the person to do that. So when I was hired in, I was hired in as a PM for the AI team. But uh, in the process of conducting research for AI, I started doing research on search just because it was this obvious platform where many of the user journey starts with search. And then I recognized that, wait a minute, how come we're not focusing on search? And I just, I didn't think I was qualified to lead that team because I've done enough research and I've done enough work in my life to know that usually the leader who leads search needs to be an engineer. So I just felt underqualified the entire time. But in addition to that, the other challenge I actually had was that the team is in Boston and you know I'm in San Diego. So, so I'm remote, right? So how do I lead a team remotely? This is before the pandemic. So imagine that most of the company is co-located. I'm this leader working on a brand new product. Well, I'm trying to replace the existing search because I recognize it wasn't just, it's not scalable and data excellence is not there. So I recognize all these problems and I recognize that I have to lead this team remotely. So one of the decisions I made up front was that I'm not gonna tell the team what to do. I'm just gonna give them space, right? And I'm gonna do whatever it takes for them to run independently. And that's the bet I made because I'd worked enough with engineers at GoPro who are just working on new technology that they know nothing about. You know, when you give them space, engineers can do great things. So that's all I did. It was me and four engineers and they're working in Boston while I'm in San Diego. And I try to just let them, you know, do whatever they need to do. 
I just asked questions. That's pretty much all I did. And then I managed up where I presented vision. And then at that time, they were like, you know, every company, there's always sexy projects that leadership tells, you know, product people to do. And everybody has FOMO because they wish they were working on that product. I never had that FOMO. I was like, that's great. Just go look at that stuff over there. Don't pay attention to us. We're just working on this really boring project over here. And that was, you know, it was something I learned that sometimes it's really beneficial to, you know, to build your own island so that you have the space to experiment and to do the right thing. If you talk to people on my team, they will call us an island of greatness. Actually, I have to attribute this phrase to my previous product manager at GoPro. He always said, build an island of greatness and trust that the rest will follow. Because a lot of times when we build things, we're like, well, what, what if this happens over here? What if this team doesn't adopt what we do? You know, what about the inconsistency? So you have a thousand questions. And I used to do that. And he said, ha, don't worry about that. Just build your own island of greatness. And then the rest will follow. So my team used that phrase a lot. And now we're at the point where, you know, my boss has said, forget about your island of greatness. There's tourists now. Everybody wants a piece of your island. (laughs) So yeah, so that was like sort of my journey. And I recognize that, you know, giving people space, trusting them to do the right thing, just laying down the guiding principles really, really works. And protect your team from, you know, noise so that they can do great things. And these are things I kind of picked up from working with other people, but I never really got to practice it and build it on my own. And so each time I had a thought like that, I would be like, let's try this out. Let's see if this works. And so I got to give kudos to the team because I think I was also really lucky because the humans on my team are just amazing. They just they believe in, in the mission, they practice the right values and they care about each other. There's a value at Pluralsight called create with possibility. And I always say that we hire very strongly against that value. If I might reflect this back to you, what you're describing sounds to me like the journey from someone who is perhaps in more of an individual contributor role, moving to a role of leadership. And I suspect that a lot of designers can empathize with this notion that I am stepping into this role of leadership in an environment where I don't have the same qualifications as some of the people that I'm leading. You said that search was a very engineer-driven position. We haven't talked about your own background, but I'm assuming from that that you're not an engineer by training. And I'm wondering, how does one overcome the, I don't know if to call it insecurities or the, this sense that, like, who am I to go in and lead this group of engineers when I myself am not an engineer? Yeah, so I think that the experience I had that GoPro really provided me with, I'm not sure if it's a practice because people always ask me to teach or train them on my practice, but I don't know if I have one. <laughs> I think it comes down to asking good questions and figuring out like a way to answer the questions. 
So for example, if, if you think about what design does is that we, we ask questions about you know, the problem so that we could define the right problem to solve. And then we might do design explorations or prototyping, so on and so forth to test those hypotheses. However, you know, the design toolbox leaves a lot of holes, you know, like on the technical side, maybe our prototypes doesn't include real data or can't include real data just because of the toolbox we have. On the engineering side, they can build things, but they lack the human center side, or at least that's not the question that engineers tend to ask. So when I was working at GoPro, we were trying to build experiences, for example, for 360 video storytelling. So when you think about a camera that captures 360, it's a mental model that humans don't have, right? So uh, all of us who were asking questions, well, what does storytelling for 360 look like? So any assumptions we make is incorrect. So what the process of trying to validate or to research what the engagement model might be like, it, it's just a lot of asking questions. So design might come up with some prototypes. Engineers might come up with own, their own prototypes. But it's that process of working together where everything is an assumption and you're kind of standing on each other's shoulder one question at a time. That's really the secret sauce. And so in order for you to have that, you have to build uh, a culture where, where the team trusts each other and the team is grounded in the question they're asking. So when I came to search, I didn't have any experience with search nor do I have an engineering background. I just knew to ask questions and I understood the kinds of discovery behaviors and motivation that our learners have on our platform. That was what I had. I understood like, th there's another piece of experience I have that I think most people don't have is I really asked the questions about motivation and behavior about 20 years ago, when I started in my career, I worked on a edutainment type of product. And there were some game mechanics in the product that we were building. And so I understood this trigger and response, you know, that's ingrained in every interaction. So I understood that if you feed the user something, you shift the framing and that basically pushes them to react a certain way. You can see this in, in search uh, auto-suggest, right? If you just type in a query and nothing happens, you're gonna type in your query because it's what you can recall. But if you suggest something, then you can shift the user's behavior because the query they put in might not be something that they are looking for, but it's only what they can recall in their own knowledge. But if you suggest something tangential, then suddenly you shifted the user's behavior, right? So I felt like the questions I was asking engineers helped them to kind of set like the milestone for the next thing. And, and the advantage was that I had this team who had never worked on search either. So they didn't assume they knew anything. 
And I think sometimes like when we reflect back on our journey, I used to tell the engineer that it was great because you didn't know any better. Uh, so we didn't have any assumptions that, you know, that we knew more than the other person. And so we're, we were all on this journey together and that was really great. And so it was just us asking questions, you know, one on top of the other. One of the first questions the team asked, we were replacing the previous search engine and one of the engineers asked like, well, what, what is the success metric? Uh, how do we know that we've achieved our goal? And so we said, well, of course it has to be relevant. And then we asked, well, what does relevance mean, right? And that's like really, really hard. So I said, well, what if relevance only mean that it doesn't suck any worse than the previous search, right? So, so then when one of our engineers, what he did was he created the script that you compared the top 10 results of our search to the previous one. That was the first kind of the first very, very early versions we did, right? But I just brought up an example that when you're building a product and you're building a team that works really well together, it, you're really building the practice of asking questions and your questions gradually get better and better and better. So that whole experience, I felt like taught me so much about building good products and building good teams. You know, I'm very excited about this parallel trajectory between building products and building teams. I have a sense that there is a strong correlation between the two. Great teams make great products. And I would expect that the converse is also true. Without a great team, it would be difficult to make a great product. And I also love the idea of asking good questions, being at the core of making progress with both. Have you discovered any practices for developing better question-making abilities? Yeah, so I'm really old, so I've lived through a lot of failures. <laughs> but I noticed when you start a new product or when somebody has a great idea or, or like sales come up with something they want to sell, things like that. Like a lot of times when people think of new ideas, they think it's like, you know, it's like this moment of eureka where it's like so clear what we have to do, but it's really muddy. Like there's a lot of word salads being thrown around, right? People have meetings, they each provide their perspective, but there's a thousand assumptions between the starting point and that end goal. Or when you're building something like search, I keep going back to search because there are so many unknowns. And when you're building something with technology that you know nothing about, where do you start, right? I have to qualify this by saying that before the team joined, I had done a ton of qualitative research. So I had like a point of view around our learners' motivation and their context. So I felt like I had a good grounding on the problem that we're trying to solve, right? Uh, the problems continue to change because the problem is scaling all the time. But generally, I felt like I understood our users. So that guided me a lot. But when you're faced with a lot of unknowns, whether it's feasibility or just, you know, the problems is vast, what I normally do is I try to get the engineering team to build something, anything. And 
I also learned this again from my experience at GoPro because you're working in emergent tech and you know nothing. So what engineers usually do is they will try out things. Sometimes when you work in, you know, in a sprint, sometimes you see engineering doing these spikes, right? They're like, oh, I'm going to go do the spike so they can research something. So a lot of times when people are just brainstorming or whiteboarding, they're making assumptions about what they think they know, but actually it's not true reality. And then, you know, like when we design, we all have this experience, right? We have an idea, we sketch it on a piece of paper, and then we go, this is a great idea. I'm going to go and I'm going to explore it. And then we go into our design tools and we flush it out. Sometimes when you flush it out, you realize, man, that was a stupid idea. Or uh, here's why it doesn't work, right? Or what often happens also is that in the process of you doing that, you come up with other ideas that are better. So the problem with, with the process we have today in many software companies is that design does all this, but engineers just look at the implementation or the feasibility. Engineer doesn't get involved at the beginning to push the boundaries or to just play. And, you know, engineers also have a problem with ambiguity because sometimes when I push teams to do this, they're like, what do we do? We don't know what to do. Like, there's too much ambiguity. We can't handle that much ambiguity. <laughs> so I, I did this with our team previously where I got them to prototype the structure of the browse flyout menu. And I, I didn't make it like a requirement. I just said, we have this constraint to build this menu. And I said, let's take like two hack weeks. You know, like you have two weeks and just go and play, right? Just prototype, ugly prototype. And one of the engineers told me the story. He said that he was having a conversation with the rest of the engineers and I didn't require everyone to do this. I just kept it open. Anyone who wants to do it can do it. And the other engineers said, well, I don't get it. What does Ha want us to do? And this one engineer said, she just wants us to have fun. <laughs> They're like, what? Like. <laughs> But that, that exercise actually got us the solution we needed. Other teams have tried to solve it and they keep hitting this constraint. And so what we did was we actually provided a hack that was a creative solution in the interim. And that also, those prototypes enable the rest of the team to, to ask additional questions like, how do we surface these topics in the menu? And data science took over and data science did their own prototypes. So it's prototype, prototype, prototype. So I really believe in getting engineers involved at the onset of you know, big problems. But usually I try to boil down like some core constraint that I want them to explore. And even if the prototype doesn't work out, it answers additional questions that we didn't realize. Like what you wanna do is you wanna identify the unknown unknowns as fast as possible. And sometimes the unknown unknowns provide you with additional questions about the possibilities about where you might go. And sometimes it just surfaces the risk immediately where you're like, okay, that's not gonna go anywhere. Let's eliminate that, right? Versus design doing all this stuff and then you hit the constraint and you have to do all these workarounds and then you have like a compromise experience. So that's been my practice. And I always think that 
if you get engineers involved early, you will unlock their technical imagination. And so that's the battle that I fight all the time at any company is I try to push back on deadlines and arbitrary constraints so that I can give my team space to play. Because I know that if they did that, they would build a better product. What I'm hearing there is that we are somehow bound by our self-identities, whether it be as an engineer or as a designer. And when you were talking about engineers gravitating towards trying to solve a problem versus this more designerly approach of tackling the uncertainty that comes in that first part of the double diamond, right? It sounded to me like what you're doing is you're helping jog these people who self-identify as problem solvers to reframe their own role as one that maybe is not so much about problem solving, but can be also about playing and about tinkering with different directions. Is that a fair fair reflection? I also think that in every problem, there's time for divergent explorations and there's time for convergent explorations. And some people are good at one and some people are good at others. So I wanna make sure that I provide the space for any practitioner to contribute wherever they feel their secret sauce can be applied. And it, a lot of times we just pay designers as the one who are always working on the divergent ones. But really data scientists are amazing at doing that. And some engineers also, they ask questions that we would never ask. And I think that's the valuable part about innovation. That sounds to me like great advice for everyone to just give yourself opportunities for both types of thinking, both divergent and convergent thinking. So thank you for sharing that with us and for sharing your time. Where can folks follow up with you? I'm on Twitter. I try to limit myself to one social media uh, network because it's too much work. (laughs) But yeah, I'm on Twitter at HP Daily Rant. People ask me where that handle comes from. The HP Daily Rant, or sometimes people call it the rant, uh, began when I worked at a startup and was ranting about every single problem that came up every single day as a startup. But it's evolved. Yeah, so follow up with me on Twitter. I answer most questions I get on DM also. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us, Han. Thanks, Jorge. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening. As always, you can find notes and a transcript for this episode at theinformed.life. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please rate or review it in Apple's podcast directory. This helps other folks find it. Thanks.